Welcome to episode 131 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic. And uh, this is based on an article that our friend Mike Dano wrote for Light Reading. And the subject matter is, is the Mexican government thwarting efforts for operator 5G deployments? So it's no secret that AT&T does have a footprint in Mexico. They've acquired um, Spectrum um, through uh, auctions and that sort of thing, as also through AWS. That Spectrum has been uh, uh, low band Spectrum. But Mike wrote about the fact that um, AT&T will be returning that to the Mexican government. And what's going on there is, um, you know, I've talked about this on prior podcasts, the spiraling cost for licensed Spectrum, especially Again, we can point to C-band, you know, the 80 plus billion, probably 90 billion when it was all said and done. Well, apparently in Mexico, um, it's even more expensive. And uh, not only do operators have to buy spectrum, but they have to pay an upfront fee uh, in addition to that for whatever reason, maybe just to, to be a participant in the bidding in an annual usage fee. And so um, AT&T basically is stating that, you know, they're, they're making it very, very difficult for them to deploy, um, you know, the the 5G network in that country, um, there are plans, according to AT&T Mexico, that it would launch its uh, 2.5 gigahertz holdings. Again, and that's you know that's the Goldilocks you know spectrum that we've talked about in the midband. Um, but that announcement was made in 2021. But still, the the deployment with, across Mexico um, has been quite slow. Um, at e Mexico said that it would cover 25 cities uh, with 5G, and they're not quite there yet. So here's another example of a government, you know, I, I don't want to call it, you know, you know, greedily lining its pockets. But, you know, when you're when you're putting all these additional fees and, you know, spectrum auctions balloon out of control, I mean, there's a cost of deploying infrastructure as well. And it's quite costly. It's in the billions of dollars. But I don't know if you caught this news, but would love to get your insight. I did. Um, I didn't know the details of what um, the the costs were that were making it so prohibitive. Yeah. Um, but that does sound um, like an interesting way for a government to prevent um, spectrum squatting. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's maybe one of the motivations for it. Um, it's also a good way for a revenue for for a government to continue to. Um, generate revenue after a spectrum auction has occurred yeah um, that way you know some of these spectrum agencies um, don't have to rely on constant auctions of spectrum to continue to fund themselves um, so I think it's a good idea maybe poorly executed um, but I also think that you know if that spectrum is not being used efficiently then the the economics of um, those fees don't make sense yeah. In which case, it might end up in somebody else's hands who might use it more efficiently. So I think this might be more of a positive um, overall um, in terms of like making Spectrum available to people. But yeah. it also increases the bar or raises the bar for, for somebody who wants to enter the market. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit like a, um, a moat. But at the same time, it's also a good way to keep people from squatting on Spectrum like some people do in the U.S., yeah, so, you know, that's an interesting perspective. I didn't really think about that, that annual usage fee. I mean, when you look at uh, the number of years that Dish Wireless in particular 
um, sat on spectrum. Um, and then they, you know, they, they got to the, the hairy edge there, uh, risking fines for, uh, for not meeting coverage goals. And they kind of faked their way out of that. We've talked about that on prior podcasts, but that's an interesting perspective. But, you know, from my perspective also, Mexico is a pretty unique market. Um, you have the ultra wealthy, you don't have, you know, that significant of, you know, sort of a middle class subscriber base. And then you have, you know, the very impoverished. And so, you know, uh, you know, I think it's a good point that you make, but I also, I think the market, you know, just the overall market dynamics and in Mexico don't lend well to this. And it just feels like a muddy grab to me, but um, we'll continue to monitor this and report back as things develop. We're going to talk about dish. We're both going to talk about dish in a second, but first, we're getting really close to earnings season, a quarterly earnings season with all the mobile network operators. And typically, Ookla starts publishing um, their reports. And you want to talk about an Ookla report and T-Mobile. Yeah, so um, this report um, was an Ookla report, actually. Um, and they were talking about speed tests in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and T-Mobile speeds are now north um, of 200 megabits per second uh, as a median speed, mm -hmm. uh, which is not to be confused with an average. Right. Um, and uh, Verizon uh, has a, a median of 127 and AT&T has a median of 85. So all of them are faster. Um, sure. The difference is that T-Mobile is a lot faster. Um, and the gap between um, them continues to be quite large. Um, you know, T-Mobile is... Uh, on on the edge of being double Verizon, um, and is actually faster than Verizon and AT and T combined in terms of their speeds. Mm -hmm. So um, there's still quite a gap uh, between those the T Mobile and AT and T Verizon. Um, but it's clear that AT and T Verizon are still fairly close. But it kind of seems like Verizon might be pulling away from AT and T now, um, oh. and I think that might just be because their mid band deployment started earlier, so they have more of a footprint. Right. Um, so I think um, this is a Q4 thing. So yeah. um, I think we'll probably see AT&T close that gap between itself and Verizon um, as, as its network deployment matures because they've only had two quarters to deploy. Yeah. Um, but Verizon, Verizon had a whole year at that point. Um, so I think that that gap will continue to narrow this year. Um, and I do think Verizon and AT&T will continue to narrow the gap between themselves and T-Mobile. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it will be close anytime soon um mm -hmm. especially with uh you know more spectrum becoming available at the end of this year for t-mobile um and at&t actually um so it'll be really interesting to see how that additional spectrum that will be available later this year will um bolster at&t and t-mobile um, because verizon doesn't have as much in these later blocks of c-band um, yeah so. yeah it is you know I, i'm not surprised because you know we we've talked we talk about T-Mobile quite a bit on the podcast. We talk about Verizon and AT&T as well. But when you look at the, the lead that T-Mobile enjoys with respect to having those critical mid-band assets from the get-go with its acquisition of Sprint, and then it's first to standalone. Uh, we, you and I have talked about standalone you know, multiple times. I mean, it'll unlock the true promise of, um, of 5G. I think that, that provides T-Mobile decided advantage from a performance perspective. But agree with you, um, AT&T and Verizon should start to close that gap um, as they continue to deploy their mid-band assets. Um, you know, AT&T has this 110 spectrum auction as well. 
And uh, we've also talked about that. Um, the profile of that is such that doesn't quite need the the same level of densification as uh, as C-band, but uh, yeah, it's all interesting. So I think, you know, we'll you know we'll see what happens here. But I I, I believe over the next twelve to eighteen months we'll start seeing a narrowing of the gap, especially, you know, now we're we're seeing um, cloud core deployments from AT and T through Azure, and we're seeing similar, but I think it's more limited from Verizon's perspective. They've done some some sort of limited you know 5g core deployment to get closer to that standalone um, realization but time will tell but let's let's move to my second topic this week and I sort of alluded to this at the beginning of the podcast you and I are going to both talk about Verizon and so um, my friend Sumeris with fierce wireless wrote an article this week um, talking about uh, dishes prepaid business now, um, I've spoken to this in the past. Um, they've they've been losing quite a bit um, from their from their boost business from a subscriber standpoint. You know, initially uh, when uh, the company uh, unveiled its plans, uh, a big part of their plans were to lean into you know th their various acquisitions uh, acquisitions of MVNOs to build upon um, a customer base that could, they could potentially move to a postpaid service. And so they've continued in the latest the latest, latest quarter um, to lose subscribers. I mean, um, she had Roger Enterer, who I have a lot of respect for. He's a fellow analyst that spoke to the fact that he didn't believe that, you know, that would affect them long term. But, you know, my concern is that as they have continued prepaid losses, they're losing revenue, they're losing ARPU, and they're going to need revenue to be able to launch that new postpaid service that you and I have talked about on prior podcasts. So you know, that could potentially slow things. I mean, they're obviously their their coverage mandates and that sort of thing, but what are your thoughts? I think they're in a tough place. I think that they probably should have had a more mature network before they made these acquisitions. Mm -hmm. um, I think their strategy is changing um, and they're becoming more aggressive on building their own network. Um, but that's kind of in the face of what their original strategy was, which is to kind of do both. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, long-term they will eventually have their own network, but, um, you know, there's, there's costs to doing that, which we'll talk about in my next topic. Yeah. Um, and I just think that, uh, you know, they, they, it's not easy being a new, new entrant into the market, especially when there's a new technology, um, being introduced at the same time. And I just think that, um, Postpaids are what everybody wants on their balance sheet, yeah. um, and and prepaids are, you know, a great lower margin business. Um, but um, I just you know it's it's unclear where dishes financials will land mm -hmm. um, based on their prepaid postpaid mix, yeah. and how big both of those businesses will be. So. Um, I think we're still very much in the early phases of, of Dish's, um, you know, deployment and maturity. Um, but I, I think they are, um, you know, the clock is ticking and they don't have unlimited runway. Um, and I think they've got to, you know, show some real um, traction fairly soon or their uh, um, investors and their debt holders are going to be... Um, asking questions. Yeah. I mean, you make a really good point. I mean, kind of looking at, you know, what that balance is between uh, prepaid and postpaid. 
to your point, you know, the prepaid business is a lower margin business. You're, you're not as an operator, you're not, you're not making, um, you're not earning the same amount of revenue on high end, you know, smartphone sales and that sort of thing. Typically these prepaid plans, you're purchasing a pretty inexpensive Android phone. It's usually 30 to 50 bucks. Um, and then the other, the other challenge with the prepaid business is just a higher churn rate than postpaid, right? And that factors back into the overall margin. But, you know, the biggest concern I have is that, you know, whenever Dish, you know, officially sort of came out of stealth and announced their plans, they sort of spoke to like how they you know, had acquired these uh, prepaid businesses, you know, and they were boasting, you know, a million subscriber base that they were going to be able to build potentially a postpaid service, you know, on by some sort of conversion. Um I think I think their goals may have been a little aggressive and may have been you know a little forward looking there, but you know time will tell. Um, there are other analysts uh, that that you and I um, compete amongst that that don't think it's that big of an issue, but time will tell. So we'll see. But you already sort of segued into your own segue. <laughs> so you want to talk about Dish and you want to talk about um, um, some revenue um, that they're trying to raise. Yeah. So. Um... Late last year, Dish talked about raising $2 billion um, to basically fund their network build-out. Um, and now they're talking about raising another $500 million in addition to um, that $2 billion, which they asked for in November of last year. So the, the, they, the bill keeps running up on their network deployment. Yeah. Um, to remember, they're and they're using a combination of um, two point two gigahertz AWS four seven hundred megahertz E block and one point nine gigahertz H block AWS. So um, they're using three different slices of spectrum that they already have, um, and they are doing this through their own virtualized five G network. So I I think when you look at where they're spending and what you know what they need to do. Um, I think it's mostly equipment, um, which is obviously why they were pushing open RAN so hard, right. um, and why they wanted more competitive solutions. And mm -hmm. I do think that um, when you look at this $500 million, which I think are convertible notes, um, uh, senior secured notes, um, they they are looking for ways to make up for, I believe. Um, I believe they're looking for a way to build this network without spending as much money. And I sure. just don't think those options exist yet right. or necessarily exist in a fashion that would actually drive down prices. So mm -hmm. yes, open rent exists. Yes, there's hardware that you can buy and use it for. But I think the the, the economics of open rent are not good enough yet um, because there's not enough competitors and not enough competition in this space to necessarily um, offer that lower cost deployment that I think Dish needed to, to make their, um, you know, 5G network a more affordable deployment um, within the ballpark of what they're hoping to spend, which I think at the end of this um, would be $10 billion. So yes. um, it, it remains to be seen how much they're going to end up actually spending. Um, but, uh, you know, I think they're going to continue to ask for money down the road. Um, but this is just, you know, uh, this could just be part of their plan, but, you know, generally I, I would hope that they, you know, raise money once a year to do this. 
uh, rather than every three months. So we'll see yeah. how this works out long term. But that that's that's just kind of the update on the Dish Network, and I feel like we kind of front and loaded some of that in our other topic. No, we did, but um, but I'm going to play devil's advocate because you provided a really nice segue to, to my third topic, and I and I want to talk about some uh, 5G predictions that I made um, Friday uh, of this week. Uh, I just posted an article to Forbes, and it was actually I included uh, three predictions for 5G and three predictions for security. I, I believe what Dish is probably experiencing is you know it's not about there isn't enough competition in in, in open RAN. I would argue that we may see some consolidation this year. Um, it's no secret that Mavenir has been stumbling. Uh, they just had another round of layoffs, and um, you know, and you know, I believe you know you've got a couple of other incumbents in that space, like in the form of JMA Wireless and Airspan Networks, that are fairly well established. I mean, they're smaller organizations, but um, they're you know they've proven some consistency over time. In fact, Airspan Networks just went through. It was, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure what the financial terms of it were, but um, I believe there was some sort of acquisition by a private equity firm and they've relaunched themselves. They've they've um, they've issued um, a new ticker symbol called MIMO, pretty clever. And um, and that's obviously that's that's a way to raise capital and, and to move their their business forward. But um, I actually don't believe that it's necessarily, you know, Dishes having, you know, kind of some some stumbles because of a, a lack of open RAN solutions. I I think there's going to be a consolidation. I think you know the the weaker players are going to going to die. And you know, Mavenir, you know, it looks to me by all you know uh, measures uh, not to be doing very well. And I think they um, they 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 aggressively overhired prior to the pandemic. And I think they got ahead of themselves there. So I think we'll see some consolidation in open RAN. Um, another prediction that I made was just, and this is something that I think you had talked to at the, at the end of the year. Um, and I wanted to go a little bit deeper on it was, was network slicing. And so I think, uh, this is the year that we're going to see, um, you know, tangible network slicing. Um, it's probably going to be towards the latter part of the year as, um, in the U S for example, as, uh, Verizon and AT&T catch up and get to standalone. I think you'll see T-Mobile come out of the gate first. I mean, this is something that enterprises want. I mean, in enterprise services, uh, there are SLAs, you know, guaranteed levels of throughput, availability, latency, and that sort of thing. And enterprises are w willing to pay for it for very mission critical applications like manufacturing automation and that sort of thing. So um, I do believe we're going to start seeing some, not just proof of concepts, but we're going to start seeing some execution against uh, enterprise services. And then, you know, my third prediction, which you know may not be all that earth shattering, is that I believe fixed wireless access is going to hit its terminal velocity. I mean, there are some people that are saying that it could potentially peak. There are capacity constraints with the number of subscribers you put on, um, you know, a 5G network. Um, and typically in the home, you consume a lot more data than you do on a smartphone. So, um, but um, I also believe that. Um, for example, as T-Mobile continues to build out its standalone and mid-band, that's going to provide them some additional capacity and, um, and capability. I also believe that although AT&T has always had a fixed wireless access service, it's really been focused on the enterprise and they've really led with fiber uh, for home broadband. I, I do expect that this year, 
um, AT&T will get a little more aggressive with respect to its uh, consumer FWA offering. And then I think finally, you know, with Verizon, and you were talking about this earlier, as they continue to build out those mid-band spectrum assets, they're going to be able to improve the quality of that FWA service that they initially launched for, I think, $25, and you get a, a, a side of fries with it. And we've, we've been a little critical about, you know, the quality of that service. But I think as they build out their C-band uh, mid-band assets, that that performance should improve and that should allow them to see some decent subscriber growth. And they might even tear it out, you know, at some point, you know, um, with um, not necessarily a slice, but, you know, maybe with better capacity. I don't know. You know, time will tell. But that's my third my third prediction, you know, for the year for 5G. Um, I'll throw it back to you. I, I know that we uh, we did last year, as we ended last year, we did two look backs and one look forward. Um, any any thoughts there on um, any additional predictions you might have for 5G? Um, I definitely agree on the uh, network slicing thing. I think that's going to be a big one. Yeah. Um, I feel like um, we might actually, if we get network slicing early enough this year, I think we'll actually start to st start to see some of the first true 5G applications. Right. Um, and, and I think that's really compelling because we've been using NSA for the last four years. Yeah. And a G transition is usually ten, a full full G is usually about 10 years. A decade. So we've spent almost half this G not actually using the Getting full there. capability of the G. Yeah. So I'm really excited about what network slicing will bring. It's not just network slicing. I just think SA in general. Yeah. Um, I think network slicing is just a component of that. So for me, I think SA is the big big deal. But you can't have SA without, or you can't have network slicing without, without SA. SA. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and and that kind of tees me up for my topic. Yeah, you want to talk about Ericsson, right? Yeah. So it's actually not Ericsson. It's okay. about India. Um, okay. and the fact that you know India's five G networks launched late last year. Um, and most of those networks are launching as standalone networks. So, um, while they are late to the party, they are. They're going also, straight for the gusto, huh? Exactly. And and it's an interesting situation because um, if you look at how they're deploying, it's SA and they're going with, you know, lots of spectrum, mid, low, high. So these are actually fairly mature networks and they're rolling them out really quickly. You know, mm -hmm. they're hitting 20, 30 cities at a time when they're doing these launches. And as a result they are now among some of the most mature 5G networks out there. Maybe not necessarily in terms of coverage quite yet, but in yeah. terms of techno technological and spectrum capability, they are. Yeah. And they might end up leapfrogging a lot of countries that have kind of been dragging their feet. And we could see India being a huge uh, new market for not only 5G devices, but also 5G use cases. We could see some of the earliest... 5G use cases actually being uh, deployed in India because the networks are mature, they have the capability, yeah. and they're not worrying about legacy standalone devices or legacy um, non-standalone devices, which is actually an issue. Uh, you know, I was I, I follow a lot of people on Twitter and I follow a lot of people from India, and there was a lot of um, uproar about how a lot of these new 5G networks are not really compatible with older 
non-standalone only devices with older modems that do have 5G, but it's not standalone 5G. And, you know, in India, a lot of people are not able to afford, you know, the latest and greatest phone every year. So they're buying phones every few years. And if you go back maybe three, four years ago, some of those 5G devices were not going to be compatible with standalone networks based on Right. their modem. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that works out. Um, you know, I think there's going to be some pain, but I think overall, I think that that is a very short term pain that I think will in, in the net be positive for everyone long term, um, because the alternative is what we have here in the U.S., where um, we still don't have standalone on all three carriers. Um, and as a result, the, op you know, application developers and enterprises aren't able to build applications to all these new 5G use cases because they can't trust that the network will actually support them everywhere. So uh, India is a really interesting use case. Um, what Ericsson's CEO said was that India's 5G networks are basically ahead of the rest of the world um, and may even leapfrog China with just the speed that these things are being rolled out. Um, and, you know, India uh, in 4G was late as well, but it became a huge growth center for a lot of companies. Um, and I think we might see that happen this year with 5G uh, and standalone. So watch out for India, um, Yeah. see what they're, what's going on there. Um, there's going to be some really interesting stuff coming out of there, I believe. Um, and I think we're going to start seeing real 5G use cases, maybe end of this year, maybe early next year. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, you know, as you kind of, you know, kind of walk through that for um, our audience of viewers and listeners, it got me thinking from the U.S. perspective, there, there's there's a, a, you know, a huge initiative to pull a lot of manufacturing that was offshore to bring it back onshore, right? But also India is um, a very, you know, friendly country to the United States. And that's a that's an area for potential offshore. If companies want to move offshore manufacturing from China uh, to a more friendly, you know, place in the world, and I'm wondering if uh, the incentive for for India is they want to capture some of that reshoring activity for manufacturing. It might be a stretch, but I actually I think that um, you are right, yeah. that there is some desire to shift manufacturing out of China, either towards Vietnam or India. Um, so I think you're absolutely the, uh, correct there. Um, I think India's biggest challenge is its bureaucracy. Um, India is literally the largest bureaucracy in the world now. Um, they're also the largest democracy in the world. Um, but... Uh, you know, the, the, the challenges there, I think, might impede some of that offshoring. Um, and, and, and I mean, they pushed a lot of that offshoring to begin with when they started making, you know, a lot really high tariffs um, for imports. So they, you know, they, they made it so that people would start manufacturing in India. Um, I think manufacturing in India will continue to grow. But I think having these 5G networks and standalone what might even help them even more um, Yeah. to say, you know, we have the inf Internet infrastructure in place to make this happen. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you have a valid point there. Um, I think it might be um, a, a little on the optimistic side, but I do think there is some validity to it. Um, but yeah, I, I think the U.S. also needs to move more quickly to upgrade our networks to enable smart manufacturing and, and smart um, facilities, because um, there are going to be fewer people running these factories. Um, I've seen some factories where You know, even outside the U.S. where, you know, a factory used to employ 
one line employed dozens of people and now it takes less than a dozen to run yeah. the same line. So right. automation is not going away. Um, no. And we have just have to plan for it better. And yeah. I do believe that 5G will be a, a big pivot for that, regardless of where, where you are. Um, I think China also needs to implement the same thing. You know, they lost, what was it, like 800,000 people in terms yeah. of, of, of their population growth? It's been brutal. Year. Yeah, with COVID. Yeah, they finally announced the numbers. I, I read that. So it's, you know, population growth is not happening everywhere evenly. Um, and as a result, you know, the automation and, and smart manufacturing is going to be something that needs to happen. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how India plays its part in this in this you know new world. Yeah, I'll just I'll just fin- I'll just finish with um, I've spoken about this before. I mean, the opportunity for private cellular within manufacturing is huge. I think half the addressable market for for private networking. Um, LTE and 5G um, is, is is within manufacturing and for manufacturing automation. It's not just about eliminating jobs. It's about being able to chi- change lines over more quickly, to be more nimble, to improve efficiency, to reduce scrap, improve profitability, a whole host of things. Because traditionally, manufacturing environments have been sort of a mishmash of different connectivity modalities. But with that said, it's been another great podcast, my friend. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Tech and I'm at Onshell Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.